Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films, by film lovers, for film lovers. Each week we look at a different film and we talk about some of the themes or ideas that it throws up after doing a little review of it. And we have touched on various things over the three, now four seasons of doing this podcast. We have covered film franchises and directors and we are going through genres this season and our genre at the moment is the vampire movie. More on that later. But first we always kick off each week with um, further reading things we've been watching this week. So Rob, what have you been watching? I have started watching a new show on Netflix, a show called The Chef Show. Um, Those who have been following the show for a long time will know that I've sung the praises of the chef movie time and time again. It's a brilliant movie that inspires me to cook, inspires me to eat. And I think it's just a great kind of movie about food. This is essentially the behind the scenes, not really the behind the scenes. It's just like, this is a cooking show based on that. So John Favreau, who directed and starred in chef and Roy Choi, who was the sort of consultant chef on the movie chef go and make a cookery show they rope in their avenger friends and they rope in people they know and they just kind of it's not really like a cookery show as we know it in sense in the uk so there aren't like recipes particularly it's them talking about food and people involved in food making food certainly but it's a very different kind of thing to you know jamie oliver more about food in general rather than cookery it's great i'm a complete foodie as anyone knows and so it's right up my street so yeah if you like food if you like the chef movie the chef show is a great workout what about you, Sam? I am, or well, we talked in the week about being very on-brand, and I feel like a cookery show is very on-brand for you. Mm-hmm. And what's very on-brand for me is a Marvel superhero TV series. And I'm going to talk this week about the third series of Jessica Jones, which is utterly brilliant, and I am deeply saddened that it's not coming back because they haven't renewed it, I think. Um, the first season with um, David Tennant's Kilgrave was amazing. This season is also very good. There's a bit of a lull at times in the second season, but in general it's brilliant. Chris and Britta as the titular character is absolutely amazing. Rachel Taylor is good enough when she's not being an annoying child movie star. That's that's kind of the point. Um, and there are lots of other excellent turns in this, although the um, the actress playing Jerry Hogarth, um, I've just seen an episode which was particularly hammy from her, so she's not always great. But Chris and Rich is brilliant, and come on, Netflix renew far worse things, <laughs> and they should... <laughs> 
Come on, they should give her give her more work because Christian Rich is brilliant. I was a big fan of her when she was in the uh, bitch in Apartment Thirteen or Twenty Three. Mm. That was a yes. very good show. I've got a lot of time for that one. So as Sam mentioned at the start, there we are in season four, and we are in almost season four point two, in which we are now looking at vampire movies. To that end, this week we're trying to work through sort of chronologically, shall we say, and we are reaching the forties, and we are picking up with the nineteen forty three film, The Return of the Vampire. Master, it's night again. Beautiful, dark, silent night. With the fog creeping in. Time for you to awaken, Master. Time for you to go out. The Return of Vampire is a essentially a unofficial sequel to Dracula. It tells the tale of a uh, Dracula-esque figure coming to London during well, before, well before the Blitz, but most of the film happens during the Blitz, and it's about a um, a local. Lady Jane, as she's known, or Lady Ainsley, and her professors, her colleagues, and the police she knows, combating the sort of outbreak of some sort of disease that is tied back to vampirism. It features a werewolf manservant, I suppose, to the vampire, and certainly scenes of the Blitz and uh, certainly attacks on London are featured as, sort of, as a prominent plot point throughout. Sam, we've uh, been very positive on Osferatu, less positive on the Dracula remake. How are you feeling about the unofficial sequel? I feel like this is headed in a downward direction. <laughs> I think Bellagosi is absolutely brilliant, and the film suffers for this because there is a noticeable upturn in the film when he enters, and until he enters, it's all very stilted and... I just couldn't get on with this at all. I did think there was there were some interesting things. Again, all, all the interesting things I've got written down come from after Bela Lugosi's entrance. I mean, it, it was it was very much a sequel. It felt like not not really a cash in, but sort of trading on the the original property. Mm. And I'm not sure this felt this felt like a much longer movie. It's only seventy minutes long. It feels like a two-hour movie, and there are sort of quick transitions between the scenes. I would generally think of that as a good thing because I can't be dealing with three-hour Howard Hughes Avengers Endgame blockbusters to mix my metaphor, but. <laughs> In this case, I think this is just a little bit too quick. Mm. I think this danced through things just a little bit too quickly for my life. I can see what you're saying with that. Certainly, um, it w- was noticeable. I think towards the end, like there's a scene in which when they've kidnapped the uh, sort of the thrall and the werewolf and the vampire fighting, and it kind of cuts back to Lady Jane for like maybe three lines, then cuts back to the action, mm. but not in a kind of I suppose, not in like a intercutting way that you have some sort of Mondo. It just feels like they had a really short scene they wanted to throw in. But it wasn't really... It was just kind of like, oh, we'll go this. We should go there. And then kind of... It just 
jumped that scene and jumped out again so i can see what you're saying there i think overall i'd say i was more positive on the film than you've been mm. i i enjoy this kind of i mean i'm a big fan of hammer horror and this, this isn't hammer horror in any way but i do enjoy its kind of it's feeling i enjoy the inclusion of the werewolves i like the kind of the idea that we're building into this slightly larger world of monsters what do you mean by just First of all, what do you mean by Hammer Horror? So it's kind of Hammer is a company that makes British horror movies. Right. And did so through a lot through Pit and Pendulum. They made a lot of that kind of Quartermass in the Pit, that kind of Hammer horror films. Um, they are a sort of session of British horror movies. I could probably pull up a list and we'll certainly put notes in the show notes to all the Hammer horror movies. But they are like the big British horror movies. But they're of this kind of era and of this kind of style. They aren't modern in any way. Mm. So being a fan of those... I kind of I get the vibe they're going for more here, but I think you're right. I think we are. It's it's terrible to say this, but like over the last three weeks, the movies have got progressively worse, which is a real shame. You know, it's a real shame. Mm. But I think you, I think you're right. I think this is this is an unofficial sequel to Dracula, and it's I can see why it is. Yeah. I mean, as you say, I mean Belagosi. Belagosi is he's Belagosi. He is the icon of horror that he is, for a good reason. And I think it's notable that. Everyone else in this uh, movie isn't, and like, I, well, this is kind of want to sort of give away the sort of spoilers towards the end, guys. But like, when I was looking at my recommendations of uh, who who's been in this, what else have they been in? There wasn't much to go on. No, I mean, the, the, a lot of the actors have worked in lots of things, but they haven't broke out into into a lot of a big other work. So I think it is. You're right that when he when he's on scene, it is. It is the best, but I did. I do think I did say I did enjoy the inclusion of the werewolf, particularly because I'm a big fan of. I this kind of universal horror icons universe, I suppose, where you get Dracula versus Frankenstein, Frankenstein versus the Mummy, the you know all that kind of thing. There are um, movies where they all meet up pre, you know, MCU pre the idea of a cinematic universe. There isn't like an overarching canon to this. But there certainly is these, these overlaps. And I like that. I like the idea that this you know, this world of weird uh, supernatural, it's not just vampirism that exists, but there are other afflictions out there. Um, we talked a lot last week and the week before about vampirism being a physical deformity and a mental deformity and a sort of ethical deformity. In this, it's very much made, not vampirism, but the werewolf nature is made very, very clearly linked to ethical step- steps that when he is a werewolf, when he's a wolf part of that, he is unethical, he is immoral, he is a servant of of the Dark Lord. But then when he stops being that, he stops being a werewolf. And when he makes the choice to actually fight back and do the right thing, he loses his his, his wolf-like appearance. Mm. So I like that, 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 very much that link there where, but it was, like, it's a curse, but in his case, it was almost like a choice. Yeah. It was almost like, he he had sort of the ability to say no, which the thralls of Dr. Hugo Bruckner didn't. Yeah. I was also interested, actually, just remind me then when you talk about, that there's, this seems to be, certainly the first time this sub-season that we've had sort of, indications of mental health and they were talking about lady dr Inslee was talking about and um, the recovery she the recovery andreas had made mm. they felt very much like he'd been through a rehabilitation process and it was like a it was the sort of mental health recuperation that someone might have to go to go through after some sort of traumatic incident it was weird like it felt very kind of i know alcoholism linked in that kind of they had a relapse 
Uh, it wasn't a reinfection mm. in the same way that vampirism is an infection passed from one to one. He isn't passing, you know, werewolfism onwards, but it is an affliction that he overcame and worked hard at and then relapsed. But even in the midst of his relapse, still could pull back the other person that he'd been. Yes. Yeah. I think it was interesting that the film kind of took place during the war because I think it was an interesting kind of having seen the last two movies, but Leon Dracula and um, Nosferatu, they all kind of take place in sort of rural or kind of peasant Eastern European places. Mm. And this was kind of notable that we're taking place in quite an urban place. Um, and it's taking place in quite, you know, a modern, I mean, 43, we're still, you know, in that era. Like we're taking place in the, in the, in the war. And like, it's kind of butting up against this, this old school vampirism against the kind of modern world i'm sure we'll see more of that as we go through sort of over the next sort of seven weeks but i like the idea of this kind of old school gentleman vampire coming up against you know the cockney lads and the air ed wardens and the the bombs all that kind of that kind of the mismatch of styles i thought that that mm. did work it was odd at times i think like there was a weird kind of tonal shift at times there were certainly, certainly like the, the two air raid wardens were very much comedic characters. Mm, yeah. Talking about finding a dead body during the raid and stealing from it. And like, it was like, it was a weird sort of moment at times where they kind of, it didn't really set a tone for, like, even for that scene. I don't mind films being you know, com- comedic and dark. This just kind of didn't pick one or the other. We've talked about sort of history and chronology the past few weeks. Something I wasn't sure about is. And I wasn't sure that this film was sure about where was it set in time. Because this is a film about both world wars. Mm. It's it's a film that's twenty years that's set twenty years after Dracula because that was sort of we were talking about that being set around Jack the Ripper time, eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties London. So the beginning is set twenty, twenty five years after this. But then suddenly you've jumped forward to the next war. It's made mm. slightly even more confusing by the fact that Jane is played by the same actress who is definitely not in her mid-50s No, for the second war. And it just... I didn't feel like the film knew where it was in time. I think the film didn't care. I think no. the film wanted to set up some things. But I think the, the idea of trying to age people and that's a bit it just weren't bothered because I think that's the thing that we've got to we can't lose sight of them particularly this film they're cashing in on you know this this is a a not a cheapy but a B movie this is meant to be cashing in on this Dracula so no one's coming at this apart from us here we are you know 60 70 years later um, looking at it in depth and asking these questions it is meant to be scary it's meant to be you know evocative of that previous film and people who like that will see this mm, yeah it is sort of confused at times but i kind of like that like, i like the fact that this this cemetery seems to be in the middle of the woods but then we'll cut to you know like actually it's in the middle of the city mm. i think i'm not sure and like if it felt they had a bunch of sets uh, that they uh, didn't have before but i did like i mean just to talk about you know vampirism and as a whole across the genre like this, don't me if I'm wrong, but this is the first time that we've seen kind of the idea of it being in a graveyard. Because previously, Nosferatu and, and Dracula like been in their castle yes. and gone to the city, but they haven't resided in a, in a graveyard. Whereas this kind of, and that feels like a really key, mm. like a vampire trope. 
they're living in a graveyard and this seems to set that up but like the idea of the graveyard is you know, living in the crypt and all of that and that's like that's something we still see today look like at yeah. buffy like the crypt keeper like the crypts are a big part of that this is the first time that we're seeing that yeah that's really interesting because you're right it's sort of the the first on-screen iteration of that just like mm. I was talking about last week that Bella Lugosi, the aesthetics of the actor changed the aesthetics of the character. Fundamentally, Dracula was horrible and then mm. suddenly he's charming. And these are things that we don't question nowadays. You just think, well, vampires are sexy and attractive and also dangerous and mm. it must take place in the graveyard. And you don't question either of those things. Whereas this, you're right, we should have questioned that. Also, as, as you say, like, it is interesting how, like, un-Dracula, Dracula seems in this. You know, he, he feels just like a, a slightly suave man. You know, it's like creepy and weird, but not like, he doesn't feel like the hunter we've known elsewhere. He doesn't feel like the predator that we've seen elsewhere. He feels very much more like, sort of, you know, he just swans around and does what he wants. Yeah, you're right. There is, I suppose, maybe maybe that's something that we'll see later in the century, this idea of the the vampire as a predator. And he, he wasn't wasn't really presented as such here. Some, something I did want to talk about, something I thought was really effective in this film, I feel I haven't been positive enough about this film, so I want to be positive about it now, was the way that it used... Um, the positioning of actors, the way they use blocking to show very clearly the, mm. the relationships they had going on. So you have Andreas and Dracula, or Andreas and Brooklyn, Andreas and Tesla, whoever, Andreas and the vampire at the beginning, and the vampire is presented as higher than him throughout. There's that superiority of the vampire. Mm. He's cowering underneath him, and even when he rises out of a coffin you don't have a shot down looking at him because he's never to be seen as no. subordinate he's always rising up above Andreas mm. and it's only right at the very end when Andreas has that confrontation with him and that, that fight with him right at the end that's the first time that you see Andreas rising above the vampire that, that's when he's, he's kind of brought low isn't it? that's when he's um, taken out and but, but almost by his own hubris like he, the idea that he can, he can use and discard the werewolf mm. as he wants is what in the end is his undoing and I think that is you're right. I hadn't thought about that, but you are right. He's always even in like even in sort of minor scenes when he enters the party, kind of like he stood up a few steps. He's always at the window. People are sitting down. Like he's almost always stood above yeah. who he's who he's hunting, pursuing. And I think that is that is interesting. I was going to say I did want to highlight. I did really like the sort of the visuals of the graveyard itself. I mean, it was clearly like a set rather than rather than a location. But I really like the way they lit that with kind of spooky and the backlighting felt everything, you know, quite well built. The idea, like, it's a slightly sort of mist on the ground. The whole thing felt very mm. ooky spooky, I suppose, in that kind of way. It's not creepy in the way that we know movies be these days, but it certainly has that vibe that they wanted to go for. And also, I always praise their use of sort of location work, especially to say, you say that that final scene is clearly on location somewhere. And I think that did pay off, certainly, having these larger sets, whereas especially some of the early stuff, I mean, like Dracula, sometimes you're like, well, I can clearly see that set. Yeah. And it did undercut it here. Like, we're moving, obviously, technology gets better in the film production. We're moving towards more location work. And I think that kind of 
gives it something that otherwise may be missing. That's one of the really good things about this sort of movement through the century that we're doing. You can see the progression in film technology. It's even even something that Jem was talking about in our very first week, the the way in which you can see a clear change between the cabinet Dr. Caligari and Metropolis in within German expressionism. There are fundamental mm. changes in the way that film technology is used yeah it, it, it's you know it's certainly starting to see that i mean this is much more of a compared to um nosferatu there's certainly much more of a mainstream production much more of a sort of a, a studio picture as it was by Columbia pictures but i still think it has it retains something that's that worth uh seeing mm. so sam you haven't been overly keen do you have something else to recommend yes well you mentioned earlier that it's quite difficult when looking for looking at at the cast to see if they've been in anything else i did find there's someone to highlight i mean i've, I've been down on the cast apart from bella lugosi one one character I did think was portrayed quite well was Lady Dr. Jane Ainsley, played by Friedrich Scott, who was in a number of, not necessarily big budget, but popular films around this time. And um, one I haven't seen, but it looks like it could be, well, I tell you what, I don't know if it's any good or not, but the book's good, so go read the book, is Pride and Prejudice. It's the Laurence Olivier and Robert C. Leonard version of Prime Bridges. And my second recommendation gets even more tenuous. I mean, this this may just about be the most tenuous film of tenuous link to a film that I've ever provided. <laughs> I ran out of films that these actors were in, the films that the director had done, and we used up our Bella Lugosi recommendations last week so i was I, I resorted to writing the return of the into imdb and seeing <laughs> seeing what other films are. <laughs> uh, oh, fair enough <laughs> and if you discount the obvious ones like return of the king and return of the jedi then the high the third hit on that list is another horror film I just wanted to bring this up because it's not a great film, but it's from a great series, and it's Return of the Living Dead from 1985. By which you mean it's a great film, is what it is. It's a great <laughs> film, honestly. Is it? Maybe we need a zombie series in which I can educate you on the power of, of these movies. Oh god! Over to you. Well, you say we, we've run out of Belgian movies, but I haven't. Okay, so, uh, I haven't. So. I'm taking a, a sort of a, a left field switch and I'm going back three years prior to uh, Return of the Vampire and it's the 1940 movie Fantasia. Essentially, it's a Walt Disney World, Walt Disney flight of fancy. It's an, it's sort of an almost weird sort of feature length art movie in which they kind of put together some short films. Uh, but he pops up as the uncredited voice of Chernobog in one of the sections. I'm a big Disney fan. This is... It's a deeply weird movie. It's full of some deeply weird animation. But if you're into Disney, if you're into animation, it's it's one of the core texts. So if you haven't seen Fantasia, I would avoid Fantasia 2000, which was the sort of re-release with extra stuff in the um, in 2000. Go for the 40s version. It's certainly stronger. It's dark and it's weird, but it's certainly a film worth watching. My second recommendation 
is tenuous. I'm I'm going to say that it's not as tenuous as Sam's, you know, it's not not as tenuous as Sam's, no. but it is still tenuous. I've talked a lot this episode about how I've really enjoyed seeing the werewolf in this movie. And we aren't doing werewolf films, we're doing vampire films. So this is a chance for me to talk about werewolf films. Um, so I'm going to recommend a werewolf film that I'm a huge fan of. It's a really amazing action movie. It's a really amazing werewolf movie. And I think earlier this year or last year, I read a review of it by a film critic called Anya Stanley. I will find the link for uh, that entirely turned the entire thing in my head and its kind of idea of toxic masculinity and male pride and all of these things. Anyway, it is the 2002 movie Dog Soldiers by Neil Marshall, starring all manner of British actors that you've heard of and seen. It is very much a horror movie. It is very much an action movie. If you haven't seen it, I won't see any more, otherwise I'm going to give away what's going on. But it is an amazing, amazing movie. So yeah, please if you are in any way interested in monster movies and horror movies, Dog Soldiers is, is, is definitely watching. I'm wondering if Sam's seen it. I'm going to say no. You, you'd be correct. Fair enough. Looks, looks interesting, though. Just Googled it. It is very, very good as a movie. It's scary, it's gory, it's bloody. It earns its rating, certainly. But it's a lot of fun. Okay. So, guys, that is our episode on Return of the Vampire. From Next week, we are moving into the 50s. Um, and we're moving away from Europe, having focused obviously on the uh, European scene up until now. We are going to jump across the ocean and end up in Mexico. And we are going to be watching the 1957 horror movie, El Vampiro. So I believe it's a, once again another retelling of a, of a Dracula story, this time from a Mexican point of view uh, from the late 50s. So I'm putting some sort of deep weirdness so uh, we shall see. Yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah, it, it, hopefully it'll be something interesting. We, we, you know, just to kind of peek behind the curtains, guys, is it very easy for us to kind of stick to the films everyone's heard of and all the mainstream stuff? We do try and sort of bring in something new, something outside of the sort of Western hegemony of, uh, of uh, modern culture, certainly. Till then, guys, you can find us both online at Prestige Podcast. You find just me at life underscore academic. And you can find just me at Kaiju FM. And we'll see you guys back here in two weeks' time.